global biodiversity framework agreed at COP15 sets to protect, conserve and restore a minimum of 30% of land and marine ecosystems globally by 2030. These actions can go a considerable way to mitigating climate change. I'm your host, Damien Jenkins, Advisory Director at WSP in the Middle East. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Ludo Pitti, Landscape Director, and Jenny Merriman, Technical Director from WSP UK, along with Alex Cockerell, Ecology National Executive at WSP Australia. In this podcast, we'll discuss what it means to value nature as an asset, how that can be achieved, why it is growing in traction amongst businesses, and what are the incentives. Thank you, Ludo, Jenny, and Alex for being here. Jenny, perhaps if I can start with you, I want to go back to basics, really. There's growing demand from clients for natural capital assessments in the GCC region, but there seems to be some ambiguity about what is required and why. In really simple terms, what is natural capital assessment? Um, Thanks, Damien. Um, Pleasure to be here with you all. So I start perhaps by just explaining the definition of of natural capital. So it's really a concept that's used to recognise both the living and the non-living components of nature and the value that that provides to us as people, um, as a society. So we're really thinking about it as a stock, as an asset that provides this flow of benefits to us through food provision, through clean water, through clean air and so on. Those elements of nature have traditionally been excluded from any decision-making processes, from any valuation as such um, for, for many, many years. And there's increasingly recognition that that's overlooking a really essential part of um, our economy, essentially. We are founded in the, in nature and in that biosphere. So the assessment of natural capital is essentially looking at how we measure the value of nature and those different elements that it provides to us um, as as flows that we draw down on, if you like, with a bank account analogy, and how we can then incorporate those into the decisions that we make. Because if you have a value for something, then you use that as part of your decision-making process. So assessment doesn't necessarily have one specific way of going about it. That might be where some of the confusion comes from. Um, There are different ways to do it, but there are best practice guidance out there. There's a British standard, for example, that was published a couple of years ago. Um, There's the Natural Capital Protocol, which many people follow, which was published um, back in 2016. So there is a suite of frameworks, standards and tools that can be used to actually measure and incorporate that value into decisions either at the business level or at a a national or regional scale. Wonderful. Thanks, Jenny. And perhaps just to open up to Ludo and Alex, um, I think people typically think about terrestrial ecosystems when they think about natural capital. And, you know, I think about, you know, soils like peat and so forth that have huge storage capacity for carbon. Is that extended into the process, Ludo? You know, should we or are we accounting for those for soil systems as well? 100%. 100%. You, you look at the entire system from the oceans and the blue carbon. And and I think the, the key point in all this is, is nature doesn't operate in bits. Nature operates in systems. So it's easy to try to, to 
single out entities because that's kind of what we do in you know looking at products and services but really nature operates in systems and we need we need to consider it in in systems and so you're looking at at everything that nature provides from air quality to soil to water catchment uh, through to the food systems and everything else so it's it's really a, a holistic system thinking is is an alternative way to say it and and i think to, to just to, to hone in on the point uh, that that jenny was making i think the reason it's gaining traction is because people have realized that the world's gdp uh, over 50% of it is highly dependent on nature and so the risks to our economy when when we have climate and nature collapse is actually very real and so being able to consider this and how we address it uh, in a way that addresses both climate and nature is becoming far more important and that's why it's getting traction wonderful thanks Lida. Alex, I'm going to pose you a question. This is where perhaps the scientists will switch off and the economists will get excited. So bear in mind we're, we're talking to a, perhaps a technical audience. Um, what is natural capital accounting and what are the mechanisms for this? So I think the, uh, from, from an Australian example, um, I'd like to, to sort of focus in on the various um, specifics that can lead to a process of accounting for a value. So natural capital accounting can um, can be a measure of assessing and managing and reporting on the dependencies of a, a project or a proponent's land assets. Um, but more specifically for me, um, the, the focus is often around uh, terrestrial biodiversity um, and how we develop tools that can put a price on individual species, but also individual ecosystems, and how that price is developed and then turned into an open market system for entry from NGOs to financial institutions to governments and the trading of those biodiversity values. So how do we how do we put a price on an individual biodiversity value that is so intricately complicated? So my my experience um, is really restricted to the east coast of Australia, where we've attempted to develop a market-based scheme on biodiversity values for about 15 years now. Um, it's a legislated scheme, so we we've got a scheme that considers every single species and ecosystem within a jurisdiction or within a region, um, and has an individual price that's driven by the management costs and the protection costs of establishing um, a reserve for that species or ecosystem, and then influenced by the market demand. So what is what is the need to restore that? What are the focused intentions for stemming biodiversity loss from governments? So there may be implementation from governments, but there might be um, also project demand, so particular species in an area where Lots of development or critical infrastructure that can't can't avoid or or move away from a residual impact. Um, so for for me, it's very much about looking at the nitty gritty. So that specific of biodiversity values on the ground and having a transparent tool that measures those individual losses and accounts for them against um, a project's impacts. 
Alex, just just to pause on that. I mean, I spent a lot of time living in Queensland, and there's just huge variety between subtropical rainforests on the east coast and you know very arid semi-desert regions out around you know Injun and Roma and the like. So, is it the same tool? You know, in environments that are so disparate in their uh, in their inherent nature, there is a tool. So we we start with a building block of um, measuring condition of an ecosystem and um, population. So they're basic tools that are common for ecologists and biodiversity professionals around the globe. Um, we can measure diversity and health of an ecosystem. That's a common tool. We've got different mechanisms of doing it. Um, we then look at land value and cost of restoration works. And that can be standardised whether you're looking at somewhere west in the middle of the far-off country in central Australia to the east coast coastal strips um, where land values are a premium because everyone wants their, their, their property with an ocean view. So um, there is an even accounting. The key um, mechanism for a successful trading scheme is that we have really strict rules that prevent overall loss in biodiversity. So we trade like for like. We build those basic principles of um, not just conserving all the stuff that's out in the in the open country and restoring or, or removing the stuff that's in the high demand. Great. Thanks, Alex. Jenny, would you like to add to that? Just a reflection, really, in terms of just hearing Alex's sort of Australian experience with natural capital accounts. In, in the UK, there was a lot of effort put in by the government sort of 10 or so years ago, really, to develop a, a standardised way of allowing corporates to um, account for the natural assets that they were responsible for, so within their land ownership. Um, and there is quite a sort of specific approach, similar to what Alex was talking about, about how you look at ecosystems and the condition of those, and then you build that up into what's called a flow account but then also something with monetary values where you can do that and the reason this is being sort of encouraged is so that corporates or even nations so the UK has has one of these at the national level can look at in one metric the um, the state of their natural capital as an input into those financial decisions that are being made and more importantly into how you invest in that asset, that natural asset, in the same way that you would look at financial accounts and consider how you need to manage and make sure you've still got, you know, money turning over um, each year. So, yeah, I think it's sort of, it's being applied in different ways in different countries. I think perhaps more advanced in Australia in some respects around that sort of trading aspect based on natural capital accounts. I haven't seen that um, myself in the UK but it does have lots of purposes and I think that's the importance we're using these tools in different ways to make sure that the, the decisions are being made with a full understanding of the trade-offs and the implications for nature and therefore the economy and I think that's really the take-home message about, about all of these methods um, that's that's the driving objective. As an extension to that I know you're working on natural capital projects with my team in the Middle East. And obviously, we've talked about a specific system in the UK and a, a separate system in Australia. How does one select the mechanism in, say, the GCC region? And, you know, how did you, without going into specifics, 
develop that project and which standards did you adopt? So that drew very much on existing um, standards. So the UN system for ecosystem accounts, obviously being a foundation of that. The British standard that I mentioned earlier was developed, you know, sort of aligning with that UN standard. So we looked at that as well. Um, and also the, the natural capital protocol in terms of how you go through the process of understanding what's important for, to look at within that region. What are the ecosystems that we really need to be focusing on? What are the species that we need to be focusing on? And it's about tailoring existing methods, I think, to the context that you're working in and having a lot of stakeholder engagement with the people who work in those regions, who've been, you know, who've been running the projects and just just tweaking it really to make sure that it is going to be highlighting the issues or the values that are relevant for that particular place. Right. Thanks, Jenny. I mean, we've talked about what and how. I guess the big question, Lido, is why, you know, why are we undertaking natural capital accounting? What are the benefits to society and organisations? Can you provide us some information on that, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, th th I, I, was, I was actually thinking about jumping in with that on some of the earlier questions, but I thought I'd wait because it might be coming. So good timing. Uh, I, I would say, I think if we, if we take a few steps back, it probably stems from a couple of fundamental milestones. So the, the first one is the, all the work that the IUCN has done and setting out the key targets for protecting and restoring ecosystems on land and uh, in marine environments uh, across the globe by 2030, right? So that, that's a key target that's required in order to help slow down the various crises that we have. Part of it is because the, the nature and climate crisis are completely intertwined and dependent on each other since, you know, about 37% of the climate requirements can be met through nature-based solutions. There's complete synergies between the two. And that's why the global framework for biodiversity adopted that similar sort of 30 by 30 target and made that a, a, a global pledge uh, from all the countries that, that signed up to it uh, because uh, it, it is completely fundamental towards uh, starting to slow down and revert uh, the, the various crises we're, that we're facing at the moment. So there, there's a, a high-level demand on the why that starts from the this i guess un level uh going going back to some of the, the the standards that jenny was referring to before and then so that's been translated down by by different countries and and different countries are acting upon driving that forward and so in the uk some of that is is actually reflected in the 25 year environmental plan and and decisions are being made towards uh acting upon that and and you've got a combination of factors that are that are driving that forward that are both new designations uh like the the, the king coming up with 25 new super nature reserves in the uk uh, as well as financial opportunities to bring and accelerate that transition because uh 
the funding for those restorations uh, cannot happen solely through public finance. And so the, the, the need there in terms of the why is it's by recognize, recognizing nature as the next asset class, it's creating a new and opening up a new flow of capital to realize and, and, and monetize on what benefits nature provide us all and being able to try to influence a better way through which we bring nature back in our lives, not just because it makes us feel good, but it also provides all those other benefits and being able to, to do that at scale across the country for all those reasons you mentioned in, in, in the question, Damien, whether it's, it's increasing biodiversity, whether it's health, whether it's air quality, water quality, it's all those, those derived benefits that nature provides us all that we can start not just to monetize, but also really pull the levers on, on improving. Thanks, Ludo. Um, I mean, we've talked about different geographies here and in the GCC, I've seen you know huge momentum to enhancement around public space, tourism, you know, I think about Australia, Alex, with vast areas of legacy mining that is has huge potential for enhancement. And, and even in the UK, where there's some quite large areas of derrick land that haven't been developed due to things like contamination issues. So, I mean, we've talked about the value, how it can be done, really. So, I mean, what's, what is, what are the societal benefits of moving forward with enhancement? And really, what, you know, what can this, what can that bring to society, you know, doing a this climate challenges that we're currently facing? Well, I think um, apart from the inherent ecosystem services that Jenny sort of touched on at the beginning of the conversation, I think um, from my perspective, we have a, a very real and continuing issue for biodiversity loss and decline globally. And the reality is restoring ecosystems and um, protecting biodiversity values or, or, or natural capital costs a lot of money and it isn't um, isn't achievable purely through government uh, and government purse strings so the the pricing benefits that we're starting to see where um, a value on 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 natural capital or individual market-based credit schemes we're starting to see a range of changes in in the way we adopt as a society. So, from a from an agricultural perspective, those significant land assets that cover vast expanses of Australia often are quite marginal in areas for agricultural product uh, productivity. But at the same time, they're the areas that have some of the most residual and sensitive conservation values or biodiversity values. So we're seeing agribusiness and private individual landholders and farmers consider the biodiversity um, values that remain on their land and see that now as a real diversified income through changes in climate or, or greater fluctuations in climate where 100% um, reliant on how many sheep they could shear or how much grain they could produce. They now have a constant biodiversity credit retirement um, associated with their land asset that gives a stable, diversified income. So that's one aspect. Um, we're seeing a changing in economy on um, the way initially it was uh, a stick or 
a carrot and stick approach to implementing the mitigation hierarchy. So developing projects saw biodiversity as a constraint. They saw biodiversity avoidance as a requirement from a social license to operate, but not necessarily a commercial impediment to a project. But the pricing now is very much fundamental to business case development. It's fundamental to um, the design implementation and detailed design of a project because we can put a real value and it's a tangible, considerable value that um, will change the course of a project's developments and viability. So we're seeing those forced and then not so forced impacts that are starting to turn the tables on biodiversity loss and ultimately fund conservation in the difficult areas, so private lands and holdings beyond what government can can implement. Thanks, Alex. Jenny, just to expand on that, COP28 starts next week. You know, I'm going to be attending various functions there. I mean, climate change and climate stress is the focus of COP. I mean, how how can this benefit the challenge ahead of us? And, you know, what are the, the environmental benefits of, of, of the enhancements that we've talked about so far? Welcome back to Ludo's statistic about the fact that at least a third of climate emission, well, carbon emissions could be reduced through nature-based solutions. And that's exactly what we've been talking about, restoring and protecting these habitats that have huge capability to capture and store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But they don't just do one thing. You know, these habitats to support biodiversity and therefore can help with redirecting that curve that's currently going quite rapidly downwards in terms of loss back up to re-establishing um, the diversity that we have across our planet. But they also provide multiple other benefits that so we've talked about, tourism opportunities. We perhaps haven't talked much about health and well-being, but that's a really important component of accessing these spaces, you know, outside of our, our built infrastructure. With climate, you know, it brings resilience because you can manage flood waters through nature-based solutions. So there are a multitude of reasons for having nature as one of the solutions to the climate challenge that we're addressing and I think it, it's about also the language and the interpretation of, of the issue that we're facing so yes there are risks you know there's there's a risk from regulation coming but there's direct physical risks to businesses from just perhaps complete disruption of supply chains that they're going to have to address and, and are starting to recognize that but also it's about these opportunities that we've been talking about there are now new markets coming through you know, there are ways that this can be a commercially sensible thing to do, which previously perhaps it hasn't. And that's been one of the main barriers. So there's definitely been a change in the tide, I'd say, around how this is being um, approached. I think that's the perfect segue into my next question, really. I mean, we've talked about amenity value, well-being. There's a huge amount of amenity development in the GCC just for that purpose. And, you know, when we look at the environmental benefits you know, ecological preservation, it seems there's an imperative to do this, but finance is always a challenge with anything that's new and initiative. So what are the markets, Luda? You know, where where can these issue these agendas be financed and, you know, where can the finance come from? Well, I think going back to Jenny's point, right, first of all, it starts with 
valuing the breadth of multiple benefits that that nature can provide and and actually you can construct and deconstruct the project based of some of those portfolios of benefits so you know if, if you start to bring in the broad the breadth of legacies that that restoration and nature can provide at scale it's from the social through to the economy and the green skills as much as the ecotourism health and well-being carbon and and, and risk management and resilience so if, when you start to adopt uh, a nature first principle in how you develop then you start to really transform your approach to the development and the legacy that that development will have to the society and residents that will then actually inhabit those developments right so so you 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 you're pivoting the entire principles of what those residents would actually be able to 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 live and benefit from by having nature at the heart of it rather than having a bit of greening on the edges as an afterthought to the development process uh, so being able to embrace the local natural terrain rather than flattening everything being able to embrace those natural features uh, being able to embrace the local culture as much as anything else right because culture is born out of nature and sometimes we forget that especially in in indigenous cultures uh, the relationship with the sky you know what that you find both in with the aborigines and and the, uh, the 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 local gcc nations you know both of them have a very strong connection to the stars and the sky and it's not it's not a coincidence and and so being being able to bring all that in the development process means that we first of all really start to align the the, the value piece around what people what matters to people and where they live, and so that that which is which is probably the strongest connection we can find, and and what drives us to nature, right? Because we that's that biophilic connection. In our DNA, we were born out of nature, and we've got that that interesting connection to nature that makes us feel good and better in nature. So tapping into that uh, makes us happier where we live, right? And so then you can start to build up from from a large scale portfolio perspective. If you've got land, you can then start to to really play to what are the opportunities in terms of restoration within the marine environment and and within the land side. You know, be how you connect back some of your flood prevention and what is with actually some natural enhancements that will benefit upstream and downstream on the catchment level, all the people who live there, but also then start to introduce or protect native environments and species that maybe were at risk and actually create a habitat for them to start to thrive and reintroduce mangrove and other species around. Them. So I think that it's it's very much, and that's where I'm really excited is it, it brings together the idea of sort of master planning, landscape architecture, nature, and, and preservation almost together as a, as a value proposition where we actually really start to connect and optimize all those levers to leave a better place through the development process that doesn't need to exclude nature from it, but actually adds value by embracing nature. Thanks, Luda. Jenny, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to give an example of, of a, a project and then perhaps come back to Ludo for one. So I was going to say that this this breadth of different benefits that you get from restoring nature can apply as much in an urban setting as in a rural 
environment. So one of the projects I've been working on is in very much rural. It's uh, with a landowner in in England looking at how can they apply a nature first approach to their land and what are the opportunity costs, what's the trade-off with the current farming system that is, you know, the predominant um, use and a bit like what Alex was talking about with marginal lands, you know, where is it that you can make a really viable decision to not farm, but farm biodiversity? Where can you make biodiversity um, enhancement and habitat creation your objective? So we've been looking at that using some spatial modelling and, and a sort of mapping programme that we've developed to explore which areas could have which habitats on them and what that means in terms of how biodiversity can be valued what's the difference the uplift um, from what they've got at the moment what does it also mean for carbon so we're looking at those two factors and then we're sort of tagging on if you like the financial element so how can there be a sort of payment for some of that because again as Alex noted it's quite expensive to do some of these projects uh, depending on what the habitat is that you're trying to create so how can that become part of your financial model how do you make that a proposition that you know is investable or at least that you're getting some funding to cover the cost of so yeah so we're doing that in the rural setting because of the recognition that if you've got a lot of land you could be making a big impact for nature but Ludo's been working with with some other clients in the urban environment and I think that's a really interesting one because it's looking at a different driver isn't it Ludo it's it's sort of more about that social aspect you referred to 100% I think that uh yeah they, 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 and that that's a really great point Jenny that, that that thinking applies not just in the large swath of the countryside it applies everywhere whether it's 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 city oceans countryside mountains it you know it applies to all ecosystems and environments that that we inhabit and in 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 cities what we've developed is is a pilot with Islington for uh, converting gray to green and and we're starting with creating pocket parks on dead-end roads because dead-end roads are not in conflict with development and not contentious as far as traffic closures and and you know low traffic neighborhoods as we've seen in some of the the, the press and rishis are not getting involved with some of those around the country so I think that idea of, of focusing on dead-end roads being allows us to create a better focus in getting communities behind that idea of turning gray to green. And, and really what it provides is not so much uh, an opportunity to introduce nature back in cities, but it's very much majoring on all those benefits that we get as humans from inter that introduction of, of green into our lives, but also that shift in whose space is it what used to be a, a large dead space with a lot of asphalt becomes a new plaza with some proportion of nature and green but also opportunities for for people to meet for play for localized resilience through some rain gardens for some air quality improvements as well as potentially social and nature prescribing and how you look after the green spaces there's such a depth 
of benefit that such a single intervention provides, which actually when you scale it up citywide becomes almost something else. And that, that's a really exciting way to look at it. And, and we're currently speaking to investors about trying to unlock a potential market for urban greening. And, and there's a lot of excitement for this idea. I think that the biggest challenge is, as you, uh, as, as you will know, is the ROI. <laughs> uh, because the, there's, there's the benefit, the tracing back the benefits and the benefactors to the potential outcome buyer is far more complex in an urban setting uh, than probably in, in trying to capitalize on those solutions in the countryside where you're able to monetize some of those more, more easily. Uh, because the carbon and biodiversity pricing we would get from those interventions in, in, in an urban environment, well, that, that's not really designed for such small areas. It's really designed to, to benefit at, at large scale. So we wouldn't be able to get much back if it was just for the, those components. So that's that's what we're currently working on is trying to unlock the uh, how do we pay for this piece. And, and it's going to be drawing in on a range of potential tools on the market from from talking to business improvement districts and and looking at potential good old school sponsorship through to contributions and and potentially uh esg products and going back to potentially speaking to to range of investors and interested parties from gla and and scaling that up nationwide as well so so really really exciting opportunity there thanks What's really resonated me listening to you talk, Lido, as a landscape architect and, you know, Jenny from an ecology perspective, Alex, is that this really is a multidisciplinary endeavor, isn't it, really? And I'm I'm thinking, you know, as a geologist with a soil science interest, how all these things come together. Um, and it really strikes me that one could go down a quite a narrow route, but I'm sure if we had an agricultural specialist here today, they would bring some valuable insights to the discussion as well. And I think that would be a, a really interesting discussion to to extend. So, you know, I, I'm just pausing on the importance of the multidisciplinary nature of it and us not being limited to our own professional training areas and, you know, looking at the horizon, whether that's economics or all the, all the perhaps the more technical elements that we've looked at. So that's fascinating. Yeah, a key thing in that, Damien, is is on, on, on the soils. I think a lot of the practices around regenerative agriculture is as much about restoring soil health because our soils haven't been in, in such poor health globally in in, in a few centuries. Uh, they used to, because they've, well, they've sequestered a lot of carbon over millennia and we're releasing that carbon. And and it's the soil, the, the soil health has an impact on our own health as well, right? So it's, it's there's some real uh, multiple benefits that, that really expand far beyond the immediate ecosystem benefits here that go all the way from the soils and the water down mm. to our own uh, quality of life. Absolutely. You know, and there's, there's even some tension between obviously really positive endeavors like solar and wind energy where, you know, they're typically on fairly undisturbed environments and you know certainly in terms of um, you know preserving that carbon holding capacity is really important okay moving on a little bit i mean we've talked about a, a lot of areas the applications the benefits the community benefits the societal uplift really but i mean as environmental professionals what are the next steps and where do we go to you know 
further addressed by diversity loss in tandem with climate change and you know how do we accelerate these initiatives i feel we're at a tipping point i'm starting to see it in the middle east we've seen some really good examples of how it's actually being implemented in europe and australia so what are the next steps Jamie, should i jump in so um well i was going to perhaps shift to thinking about the corporate ESG type lens at this point. We've managed to get all the way through the podcast without referring to the task force for nature related financial disclosures. So here it comes. Um, so the, the TNFD is a relatively new um, disclosure framework that's really following in the footsteps of the TCFD, uh, which people will probably be familiar with. And what that has done, I would say, is put that focus on this sort of multidisciplinary, holistic way of looking at our natural environment. Um, and it's really there to encourage financial institutions and the private sector to understand, measure, value and disclose their impacts and dependencies on nature. It's not mandatory at this point, but it is a response to one of the targets that was set at the, the Biodiversity COP um, last year in, in Montreal. And we've seen a lot of uptake from across industry, from energy companies that we've been working with, um, from local authorities even, um, you know, and, and numerous different sectors. And it really is channeling this natural capital assessment approach, you know, that we started off talking about. It's really embedding that into an ESG framework and into business operations. It requires a risk lens to be taken. You know, how are you factoring nature into your risk management process at the governance level of your business? Um, so it's quite complex, I think, for many to, to grasp because it has so many different facets to it. But I think as, as environmental professionals, as ecologists, landscape um, professionals, ESG experts, water experts, you know, it, it covers the whole range of different areas. And I think that's something we need to be getting really familiar with is, is this changing landscape of reporting Um you know, not just the TNFD, but, but some of the other existing frameworks and standards that are really now starting to, to increase the, the strength of the biodiversity co component of, of what you're asked to, to disclose on. If I may just add a, a specific point on, on, on what Jenny was saying with regards to the opportunities, I think that there's also a couple of big things that we're seeing on the market with the, the launch of the UK Nature Investment Fund that that uh, Fertitude Hermes and, and Finance Earth have been looking at developing on behalf of DEFRA. And, and you've seen that in the GCC with the Saudi Green Initiative, for example, right? So we, we're starting to see a big shift in actually fundraising for nature. And and I think that that's, that's really promising. And, and later this week, Manchester is holding an event for the Greater Manchester Environment Fund. So really, we're starting to see that uh, shift in how institutions and governments and local governments are working together in really uh, framing how we bring that 
investment in nature to the market and also then capitalize on all those benefits we've discussed. So I think there, there's the opportunities are, are emerging rapidly and they are spanning uh, everything from major landowners through to, to 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 regions and designated landscapes because i think we 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 associate designated and protected landscape with something that's nature rich whereas actually they're quite depleted and so so there's there's a lot of focus in the uk for example on on the national parks and they've set up a, a joint venture with palladium to help shift and raise uh finance to restore nature in those designated landscapes. So I think the opportunities are are vast and, and the ask is is ginormous as well, right? Because in the UK we've only got six and a half percent in in terms of the 30% target by 2030. So we, we've really got a mortar on, but the opportunities are there as and and they're as big as the challenge ahead. Thanks, Ludo, and hopefully we get the chance to welcome you to the Middle East in February as planned to talk at a conference that we can hopefully do, undertake together. So, Looking great. Forward to it. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, I think we've covered what the subject matter is. We've looked at some really good examples of, you know, where we're actually applying it and, you know, the multidisciplinary nature of it. So, that's wonderful. Thanks so much to Ludo, Jenny and Alex for joining me on the podcast today and for the invaluable insights you shared with our listeners. To the audience, thanks for listening all the way through. Please leave us a comment if today's episode has sparked your interest and don't forget to join us for the next episode. Thank you all.